Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Hi, David. Really good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to be back for another episode of Bone Up. It's been fantastic so far. I've really enjoyed recording these episodes and we're getting good feedback from listeners. And at the minute, we have more than 850 downloads of the episodes we've put out. Yeah, that's really good. I've had a lot of local feedback and from from pharmacists and from GP colleagues and even one or two from patients as well. So there's more just than your mother listening to us, which is reassuring. I hear your brother's been listening to us as well. Yes, I have to I have to point out a, a deliberate mistake in, 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 the, in the last episode. Uh, it was pointed out that on a number of occasions, I accused Professor McCluskey of having his hand on the rudder of the good ship Frax. It's been pointed out to me that the rudder is underneath the ship. And if you have your hand on the rudder, you have fallen overboard and that you should actually have your hand on the tiller. So apologies for that. And thanks to my brother for pointing it out. He is a solicitor, folks, so that's how he makes his money. You can always rely on family to point out your mistakes, can't you? You, you, you can. You can indeed. I have to say, I thought it was a, a really, really good analogy, and uh, I didn't spot the difference between rudder and tiller. <laughs> so we're both in it together. That's good. And... Um, and it's great to, it's great to be starting another episode uh we talked in the past i think how this was not a lecture series on osteoporosis but was really a journey through the through the world of, of bone health and how we'd be stopping at a lot of a lot of ports along the way you might say or odysseus returning home from the trojan war let's say than running to the local uh, convenience store to buy a loaf of bread which is why this week we're talking about about something a little related maybe to, to fracture risk, but also but also quite different in many ways. And that is about how we discuss risk with patients, how we communicate with patients, how we talk to patients about fracture risk and about the whole area of bone health and osteoporosis. So I think this is going to be a really interesting topic for you know professionals and also for patients. I personally don't really know very much about the patient journey and and the process the clinicians and the patients go through. At what point during the care process do you talk to patients about risk and why? I suppose the point at which we talk about risk is usually when we're talking to them about starting a medication or making some other big change in management. So it's usually after they've had the fracture risk assessment, usually when they have a FRAX score from that, or at the, at the very least after they have a DEXA scan with a, with a T score. And we have 
got the patient usually in front of us face to face, although in the last year there's been a lot of telephone uh, conversations, which is another area entirely in terms of communication. Um, but we've got the patient in front of us and often I would like to suggest to them that they start some new medication and I'm trying to share with them the benefits of the medication, the risks of not taking the medication, the possible side effects of, of the medicine that they're going to get and trying to just get an idea of where they are on their journey and to try to get them, I suppose, on board with the fact that this medication will be to their advantage. How successful do you feel you are with that? Do you ever get any any feedback from the patients about the communication you have with them? Yeah, I mean, the best feedback you get ultimately is whether the patient takes the medication. And I think all people involved in osteoporosis, I hope all clinicians involved in osteoporosis, I hope it's not just me, at times have what we feel is a very good conversation with the patient. We talk about bone health. We explore where they are in terms of bone health. We explain the risk of further fracture. We talk about the drugs available. We advise one drug. We balance the risks and benefits. And the patient says, yes, I can't wait to start that doctor. And they go away with their information booklet. And then I get a phone call a week or two later from a nurse or a pharmacist or a GP to say, patient has decided not to go for that drug. And clearly there was something wrong with my explanation or with the conversation or with the impression that I got when the patient was leaving the room of how they understood the issues. And as I say, I, I imagine everyone involved in osteoporosis has that experience. So there's still a lot to learn about how we, how we share this with patients, how we explore what the patient feels and how we just do our best to have people on the right medication for the right length of time. Could it be that after a patient speaks to you, they understand the conversation, they understand the information and maybe they have made a decision to take the treatment? But then perhaps there are other sources of information. You know, your Facebooks, your Twitters, you know, friends and family that maybe contradict or disagree with what you said, maybe lead to people changing their mind. I think that's true. And I think the, the my honest response to the situation which I have just described is that while I feel at times probably I could have done better in my explanation or my discussion, there are clearly times where people have gone away and have found things on the internet or spoken to other people and that has, that has changed their mind. It's one of the issues we face in medicine in general at the moment and that is not just within osteoporosis but within all aspects of medicine. And that is authority of sources or authority of experts, because people will sometimes give credence to things they read on the internet, things they see in social media, um, and, and weigh that more heavily, perhaps, than advice they're being given by the doctor or nurse or pharmacist, someone who has 20 or 30 or 40 years experience in the field and is also accountable to them in that they work locally and they will see them again and they have a responsibility for their care. Sometimes people will be persuaded by reading things in the internet written by someone who they don't know, who doesn't live or work anywhere near them and who has no long-term accountability or responsibility. 
but we live in a world now where information is freely available and where i mean we, we actively encourage people to go out and seek information and educate themselves about their their condition but it's just the quality of that information and the authority behind that information but as i say that's a that, that's a big issue in medicine in general at the moment it's almost as though we need some sort of podcast uh, interviewing experts about the disease <laughs> and how it can be treated and managed better well that that's that's true and, and do you know it, it is it is people sometimes say you know ai could almost take over from a doctor you type your symptoms into the internet and it tells you what your disease is and, and and what the medication is but i still think there is something to be said for the doctor patient relationship and trusting the person opposite you that they seem to be an honest individual who's doing their best using their expertise and working for your benefit because they are in a position of having more information and more experience than, than you will, will have from this um and i say that's that's core to the doctor patient relationship in, in many ways do you feel pressure at all to continually learn and develop and try and do better and improve your communications with the patients and is there any training for you 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 certainly are that's almost two questions there in terms of do you feel pressure to learn and keep up to date and do better absolutely and it's one it's one positive i think from the fact that patients can go onto the internet and do huge amount of research if you are not up to date with the paper published last week and the patient is up to date the paper published last week then they have more data than you do about whatever particular issue you're discussing they may not have the experience and the general the general um, wisdom on the subject that you do, to put it like that, but they certainly have all the up-to-date information because it's widely available. So in a positive way, the fact that information is so widely available now does put you under pressure to keep up to date, specifically in terms of communication. I mean, I mentioned briefly about, about the telephone clinic, which is something that all of us have been doing in the last year. and for which I would suspect almost no doctors or nurses had any formal training. And a lot of that has been learning on the job. I'd have to say when I was training, you received relatively little education or training about communication or communication skills. I think it is something certainly can be taught and can be improved, but it does depend to some extent as well, I think on your, on your personality and on just the sort of doctor patient relationship that you that you build up so that's maybe a good point to introduce our our guest for the episode uh, and that is dr zoe paskins and zoe is someone who has a wealth of expertise on communication with patients and indeed has led and continues to lead research in the area of patient communication in the field of musculoskeletal health so uh, welcome to Zoe and over to you, Richie. So our second guest today is Dr. Zoe Paskins, a reader in rheumatology and honorary consultant from Keele University. Zoe, it's really, really wonderful to have you on the show. My first question is, what is rheumatology? Oh, great. Um, well, thank you for starting with an easy question. <laughs> um, 
oh, I should have this at the tip of my tongue. And I think it's quite hard to describe. So I think rheumatologists look after people with long-term musculoskeletal conditions and inflammatory conditions. And to that effect, I may not really be much of a proper rheumatologist because I actually don't see patients in my clinical practice very much with what we call inflammatory conditions. So these are things like rheumatoid arthritis, which is kind of probably the bread and butter of rheumatology, um, where there's inflammation in the joints and things. So my principal clinical interests and research interests are non-inflammatory long-term musculoskeletal diseases like osteoarthritis and osteoporosis. And I guess actually in reality, many people with those conditions aren't looked after by a rheumatologist. They're probably looked after by their GP. Um, but yeah, that's my area of interest. It's good to get you started off with the easy questions. <laughs> the next question is going to be a good one as well. I was wondering, Zoe, if you could tell our audience about your research programme. So I lead a osteoporosis research group in a primary care research centre and I'm uh, what you'd call an applied health services researcher. So I'm my research is mainly around very practical things that can improve uh, care and particularly patient-centred care um, for people with osteoporosis. And when you say primary healthcare centre, is that GP surgery? Yeah, so it's a it's a primary care research centre within the School of Medicine at Keele. So there are over 100 researchers there who are focusing on the primary care angle of things. So um, there, it is, although I'm a secondary care doctor, so I'm a hospital specialist, um, so I'm a little bit unusual to be working in a primary care research centre. It does include GPs, but of course primary care is a lot more than GPs, it's um, a range of other um, multidisciplinary clinicians. And within our research centre, we have a lot of um, primary researchers as well who aren't clinicians. What's the purpose of stepping out of the secondary care world into the primary care world? Well, for me, it's about uh, my sort of goal is for long term common musculoskeletal conditions to be managed better. And to that, for, for that reason, because I, I need to go into the primary care world, because they, as I say, they often don't see rheumatologists. Um, and part of primary care management, I suppose, is deciding who needs that specialist care. And so to be involved in those kind of discussions and decisions, you kind of need to move in that direction. I guess musculoskeletal diseases in general have probably got a bit, bit of a low profile compared to other um problems like cancer or cardiovascular disease. So part of our problem, I think, as a community is, is about raising the profile. And to that, I think we have to step outside of our specialty silo a little bit. I understand that you do some research around risk and communicating risk. Yeah, so I think an element of my research is about risk communication, but I think it probably goes back to what you were just saying about raising awareness. And for me, it's not just about awareness, but it's also about um, the quality of that information and messaging, because there's a lot of misinformation around um, our condition, particularly osteoporosis, which we're focusing around today. So I guess I've, I've got a broad interest in communication generally, and then within that, um, risk communication as well. Hi, Zoe. 
Hi. Welcome to the Calcified Collagen Club. I'm glad you're able to join us today. You got your glass of milk at the door, I hope. Of course. Can I ask uh, just maybe some lessons from from your experience and from the research you've done in the area of, of communication and quality of information? Because we're very keen to learn about how we explain risk to patients and how we discuss risk with patients now. As you know, I have a very practical brain. So if I can maybe uh, arrange this around a, a practical question. Um, if a patient, let's say a 75-year-old lady, comes to you and says that she has a 10% 10-year risk of hip fracture, and when we heard earlier from Eugene how we how we sort of develop that algorithm and, and, and how we produce that figure, she has maybe been seen at a fracture liaison service. She has a very clued-in radiographer who has calculated a frac score for her. And she's got the impression from the other clinicians that a 10% 10-year risk of hip fracture is a high risk. And yet there are other things in life for which a 10% risk would not seem a particularly high risk. So how do you approach that whole area of discussing risk with a patient, particularly an, an older patient maybe who has, has comorbidities? Okay, so... I mean, you've presented a scenario where, which I think is probably fairly unusual, isn't it? Where somebody comes to you and says they've been told a, a specific figure and what have you. I guess my first question or thought when thinking about communicating risk with a patient is to find out what their own perception of their risk is. And that can be quite a hard question for people to answer, I think. So I might ask them before going into any sort of risk communication about what they think about their bone strength. And I think it's really important to have that conversation first, because if you don't, anything you say about risk may kind of fall on deaf ears if somebody doesn't believe what you're saying. So in the context of, did you say hip fracture risk when you said 10%? Yes. I mean, it's an example yeah. you could have calculated yourself, but let's say a 10% 10-year risk of hip fracture, which as you know, and we know from what we've heard earlier about fracs, that puts you into the red area, that puts you into the high risk category. Yeah. So you so you and I would perceive a 10% risk as high, wouldn't we? But we don't know how this person feels about that. And it's really important to unpick that first. And I think there's lots of qualitative research that shows that um, not uncommonly people have been given a, a risk and they don't believe it. And so all the conversation that comes afterwards kind of almost falls on deaf ears. Because particularly if people, say, have fractured, but they, they have decided that they fractured because they fell over the cat or because whatever and anyone would have fractured in that circumstance so for me I think it's really important to ask what they think about their bone strength first and if they say as this happened the last time I asked a patient he said well I thought my bones were quite strong so I had to do a little bit of work explaining what his risk factors were and how um, his bone density results and how that was just part of a picture of his overall bone strength. And actually, the, this gentleman had other risk factors, for example, his medical conditions or medicines that would affect his bone strength. So I had to do that. And then, then the patient, I think, is starting to realise or be more open to a discussion that they might be at perhaps higher risk than they thought they were. So that's the first thing to kind of preface any discussion on risk on, uh, risk discussion, I think, with what they think. Then I'd want to kind of unpick in this scenario what they think by a 10% 10-year 10 risk means because 
that's really complicated, right? So first of all, it involves percentages. And there's the old adage that 50% of people don't know what 50% means. And not only is it a percentage, it's got this element of time as well. So one of the ways that these kind of uh, risk things can be misinterpreted is that people may think they're only at risk for 10% of the time instead of being at 10% risk. So you can see how easy these are to be misconstrued. So the good news about risk communication is that there's actually a huge literature of evidence to draw on out with osteoporosis. And if people are interested in this, the FDA have um, produced a book on it, which is available online, and it's kind of summarizes all the evidence. But the kind of um, if if I'd have been the person to give this person their FRAX result, I wouldn't have said they are at 10 percent risk over 10 years. I would say that they had a one in 10 risk over 10 years. So it's about using simple frequencies, one in 10 instead of 10%. Okay, that's a, a very useful point. And in general, the when we use those simple frequencies, the lower the denominator, the second number, the easier it is to understand. Um, so I've, I've done a bit of mental maths there and changed 10%, which is really 10 in 100 to one in 10. Um, however, if you're talking about multiple risks in the same com- conversation, it's important to try and use the same second number because it makes it easier for the patient to do some comparisons. Um, so, but in this example, I'd probably say they had a one in 10 year risk. Now, the other thing about risk communication is that you're supposed to do something called positive and negative framing. So in other words, you'd say the risk of something happening and the risk of something not happening. And that avoids the sort of cognitive biases where we focus on one event rather than the other. And I particularly do this when I'm talking about side effects. So if I said that somebody had a one in a thousand risk of getting a jawbone problem, if they took a bisphosphonate for 10 years, for example, I'd also say that they had a 999 in a thousand chance of that not happening. So that's positive and negative framing and tries to avoid the focus on one rather than the other. It is. I mean, it's certainly something I think comes up in this, whereas a 10 or 15 percent risk of hip fracture is perceived as high. But if you turn that around and frame it positively and say uh, 85 or 90 percent risk of not having a hip fracture, then the patient probably justifiably would go away thinking, well, that was a, a positive, a positive outcome. And I think we probably, as all as doctors, can be guilty of that a little, maybe pushing the positive or pushing the negative um, if we're hoping to persuade people towards one outcome or another. Yeah, we're walking this tightrope between shared decision making where we're supposed to present all the facts in a very neutral and unbiased way and beneficent, beneficent persuasion where we're actually trying to encourage the patient to make a decision that's in line with their values and it's it's a very fine tightrope i think and i think there is um ethical justification in some situations to yeah to kind of use what we know as long as we're not it's not going too far into just persuasion and what have you so i think in that when we know Maybe in that context, in my own practice, I haven't actually thought about this before, but actually uh, now I do think about it. I probably wouldn't use positive and negative framing when I was talking about fracture risk, but I would do when I'm talking about side effects yeah. because I think there's an over-focus on the negative. 
Absolutely. Yes, you, to some extent, you're correcting what might be an incorrect perception. Yeah. While we're in that area, it's something that I felt probably increasingly aware of in, in my practice over the last few years, and that is comparing diseases and the risks of comparing diseases. And it's something I probably did in the first episode of this, and it's comparing the outcome in whatever disease you're talking about with the outcome in cancer. And particular, and I think in the first episode, I, I quoted that around 25% of men with hip fracture will die within a year and compared that by saying that most cancers, for example, have a better outcome than that. Do you think it's fair comparing diseases like that? And in particular, do you think using comparison with cancer is fair for patients? Do you think it's helpful or do you think comparing diseases just clouds the issue? Well, that's another corking question, and it's like two or three questions in one. So you're asking about fairness. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting our value for money. Yeah. So I guess it depends on your purpose is my mm -hmm. answer to that, because I think in the risk communication literature, one of the techniques for getting people to appreciate what a risk actually means is to compare it to the um, frequency of another event. But usually you see this more in rare things. So maybe if you were, again, talking about side effects, you might say the chance of that happening is equivalent to being run over yeah. or, you know, being in a car accident or something like that. And there's visual um, ways of, of showing risk compared to the risk of other events in your life. In the example that you gave, I think that the purpose is a bit different. It's not to aid understanding, but it's almost to kind of emphasize the importance possibly. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's a particularly uh, personally effective or helpful because I think the, although what you do raise is a really important point that, and again, this is context to this risk conversation. Before you've even started talking about this risk and an individual's risk, you've hopefully set the scene about why osteoporosis is important and what the consequences of it are yeah. and the physical, social and psychological consequences of fracture and for me that's the important conversation i think comparing it with cancer cancer is a very emotive word and people will react to it very very differently and have different experiences and thoughts about it and as soon as you mention it you know somebody might be going off on a different train of thought so i i think for me it's about what's your purpose and if it if it's to emphasize that this is common it's important absolutely that's important but i think we should be doing that in other ways um for example, and, and some of our research is centered around this, around how best to do this without, you know, driving fear of living God into somebody. Um, but one of the things that people commonly don't understand is the um, effect of spinal fractures and the fact that they, although they heal, they remain misshapen and then that can affect your posture uh, and so on. And actually being able to show somebody that and explain that is an important part i think of explaining what the consequences of osteoporosis might be and why it's important to take steps to um lower the risk of fractures and try and, and protect your spine and so on mm -hmm. yeah it's something i used to say i have become probably more uncomfortable with comparing things with cancer because you don't always know the patient's background their lived experience and exactly it's a, it's a very emotive issue and then i've probably tried to 
to, to move away from, from that. So, I mean, you, you've mentioned that we we should, rather than use percentages, we should probably break things down to one in 10 or one in 20. I think the positive and negative framing is very useful. Have you any other any other tips for us from your experience or from your research about, about explaining risk to patients? Do you think patients deal with the concept of risk more easily or deal with the concept of something wrong with a tissue in the body more easily? Because I think when we're moving away from using DEXA just for diagnosis to using FRACs and risk scores to inform treatment, do you think people are people find it easier to deal with the concept of a tissue wrong in their body than this mathematical concept of risk? Yeah. So again, you've asked me two questions in one there. So ah. I'm going to go with the, um, right, I want to hold on to the, but let's talk about the first one, which was about any other tips for risk. And then we'll come to that second one, which I think is really, really important. So, um, so the first one was, have you got any other tips around how to communicate mm. risk? And I did just want to touch on the use of words because we've, we've already said in the scenario you painted earlier that this woman has got high risk. We've used the word high, haven't we? Yeah. So um, if, if I said that you had a high risk of COVID infection, what kind of percentage risk, Richie, would you think that you had? Five percent. Okay, that wasn't the answer. I was okay, five percent. So, if someone said you had a very high risk of COVID, what would you think? Maybe ninety percent. And what? How would that affect your behaviours? I suppose I'd work from home more, avoid contact with other people. I might be inclined to tell other people that I'm in at high risk, so they might change their behaviour and stay away from me. So, I think words are. Um, interpreted very differently from person to person and the uh, Royal Osteoporosis Society helpline gets calls every day from people who've been told they're either at high or very high risk of fracture and are terrified to go outside and that probably equating a high risk to more of a sort of you know I am going to fracture and I mustn't leave the house kind of frame of mentality and clearly we're talking about high in the context of a one in ten risk which where the balance of probability is that this person won't have a fracture, isn't it? So um, we need to be very careful about the use of high risk, particularly and very high. And the, because these words are used very differently, again, the kind of risk communication literature advises that you don't use them. and Or, or if you do use them, you qualify them with the numbers as well. You don't use them on their own. And again, talking about side effects as well, I think it's really helpful when you talk about risk with side effects. So studies have shown that people interpret rare very differently as one in 10 or one in a thousand so the, the just saying oh don't worry it's very rare is not helpful and of course people tend to think in a binary way as well they don't think in a risk probability way if somebody knows somebody who's had an event particularly osteonecrosis of the jaw and you tell them the risk is one in a thousand then it's kind of meaningless because they think about their own personal experience and their own personal narrative so all sorts of um, difficulties there. So going back to the this scenario, I, I think the important thing is not to use the word high on its own, to use words in combination with um, frequencies, and then to try and, um, if you're going to use a word or a label, use a meaningful word or a label. So you could say in this patient, in this example, if they wanted to know whether 10% was high or low for their age, 
you could say, well, this this risk falls into the treatment zone rather than saying it falls into the high risk. You could say it falls into the treatment zone for your age. And you could show them the NOG graph to kind of illustrate that where it plots risk in sort of green or red, depending on their age. It's really interesting that you say that because I've always been concerned that the term high risk to me, high risk of rain to me means that it's more more than likely it's going to rain than not going to rain. And I've always wondered about using the term high risk in patients. And I wonder, and I know it opens opens a whole new discussion, but using terms like high for your age or higher than average, which indicates that we're concerned, but qualifies it in some way and as you know we're now developing or there's this term imminent risk as well which is being used which could be a very useful term but again to me it suggests to patients that they are about to fracture and that we're we would be surprised if they didn't fracture and fracture in the near future whereas for most people who we say had very high risk or imminent risk we know that that's we know that that's not the case we almost need to tune down our language do you think we almost need to move it move it down from suggesting that this is very dangerous to suggesting that it's something you can positively do something about absolutely yeah and i think that kind of speaks to what your second question was a few questions back which was about Mm -hmm. does it well i'm I'm paraphrasing now i'm not going to get it right but it was something around does it matter this that we're giving people a risk score rather than giving them a kind of tissue diagnosis. I think that was what you were talking about. Yeah, I just I just wondered if people find it easier to deal with the concept of a tissue diagnosis as opposed to dealing with with a concept of, of a figure of risk. I, there's a helpful psychological model for how people make sense of disease. And it's got five elements to it to how people make sense of the disease and all their condition, and then that affects what behaviours and actions they'll put in place to deal with it. And the first element is the identity. So what is it that is this condition? And can you describe it? How do you characterise it? What symptoms does it give you? And so on. And I think we can do that for osteoporosis. And I think that uh, I personally don't think it matters whether it's a scan or a tissue or whatever. I think it does. osteoporosis does have an identity. The second element is the um, uh, is the consequences of it. Uh, so what does it lead to? And in our case, again, we talk about fractures. Um, then there's the causes, importantly, and we talked before about really important to help people understand what their own particular risk factors are so they can accept the, the diagnosis or the risk that we're talking to them about. Third element is the timeline. So what happens to it over time? And that contributes to how much you care about doing something about it. It links to the consequences. And the final bit is the controllability. So can I do something about this? Or is it just sort of fate that it's it's a so in osteoporosis, is this just a natural consequence of aging that that is not that for which treatment is futile? A lot of people hold that belief. They may have been told you've got osteoporosis, but it's normal for your age. So why on earth would you take a tablet for your osteoporosis if you've got something that's normal for your age? So we need to attend to all these elements when we're giving somebody a diagnosis. And it's harder to do when you're talking about risk alone and you haven't got that osteoporosis diagnosis. You can to a little extent, but I think for people to understand the identity, what does that mean, uh, is a little bit harder. 
And I think it makes it a lot easier if you can give somebody a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis. So there are often times, I think, scenarios where we don't either don't have a bone density result um, because it's uh, not recommended in people over a certain age or um, because a bone density scan isn't practical. But we know they've got bone fragility, particularly in people who've had hip or spinal fractures before. And in those contexts, I think a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis is a very sensible approach. Well, it's not strictly speaking what the World Health Organization uh, criteria would encourage us to do. Um, but I, And I think it's really important for patients to help make sense of their condition and make changes to their health behaviours to, to mitigate that. Part of our research, I think, is to try and get some quick and simple take-home messages for uh, around communication and translation of scientific evidence. I, the, there's some quick and easy wins, I think, that we're doing really badly. I mean, I can one quick example, if I may, is we've just sort of reviewed the quality and readability of nine different um, patient information sources about um, osteoporosis that are available online from sort of charities and the NHS and so on. And we looked at the language that was used and the, you, you wouldn't believe the power of a single word that's in the wrong place or with the can, can have real massive consequences. So for example, um, a lot of the information um, about osteoporosis drugs talks about them preventing fractures. And we know that the general principle at a population level of osteoporosis drugs is for fracture prevention. But on an individual level, if you tell a patient that their drug is going to prevent fractures, it doesn't. It lowers the risk. And then if that individual then has a fracture, their treatment expectations aren't met and they'll stop taking the tablet. And there's so much of that that we don't make clear what medicines do in osteoporosis and we're not clear about it ourselves I think amongst the community either, let alone to express that clearly to patients. Within osteoporosis I think there are some small quick wins that we could just be a lot better at and I think that's what we're trying to um, spread the message about really. Yeah. It, it all brings it back to that understanding of risk doesn't it in that if a patient has a, an infection and you give them an antibiotic, their goal is that the infection is cleared and that's a binary outcome. The infection's gone or it's not gone. If they have high blood pressure and you give them an antihypertensive, they expect to have the blood pressure checked and be told it's back to normal. But it's harder to hold in your head the concept that my risk of fracture has now reduced from 10% to 5% because I don't actually feel any different knowing that my risk of fracture has reduced. Yeah. So we've done some work with patients about how to best explain that. And now we're using language about, uh, you'd like this, uh, David, because it's a metaphor. Oh, I love uh, metaphors. Yeah. And uh, similes. So You've got to save up in your bone bank is one. I haven't oh. used this with patients yet, yeah. but it's, it's like saving up to go on holiday. And if you checked your piggy bank in six months and just stopped saving, then you'd be disappointed because you wouldn't have enough to go on holiday. I can actually, this one, this one is from Rob Horn. So I must acknowledge him on this one. Uh, and um, yeah, so you, and also emphasizing that it works silently in the background um, and that you can't feel your bones strengthening. Again, this is another thing. If people feel, 
a common reason why people stop taking their medicine because they don't feel better because their treatment expectations haven't been met. They don't feel better. They've been told they'll be stronger. They think they'll feel stronger and be able to garden better and all the rest of it. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something I, if any of my patients are actually listening to this, many of them will have heard me saying, you will not feel stronger after you take this medication. I often sort of raise my right arm to show them my biceps and say to them, you will not go out after receiving your IVs on antronic acid and feel stronger, but you'll know that you've done something to reduce your risk of having one of those fractures again. Yeah. How do you research the doctor-patient interactions? Do you bring people in and watch these interactions in a lab setting? Do you record them for quality control? What's the process? Uh, well, there's all sorts of things you can do. So um, you can you can observe interactions and, and then you could analyse that either qualitatively or quantitatively. Actually, for my PhD, I video recorded 200 GP consultations and... Uh, qualitatively qualitatively analyze them and I but that that was around osteoarthritis and how that was discussed and then I interviewed patients and GPs afterwards and showed them clips of their consultation in, and with using a method called video stimulated recall to get their further sort of um, perceptions on what had happened and what meanings they'd taken from things um, but you, you can you don't have to do observation I mean probably the best way of finding out what actually happens in a consultation is to observe it but uh, indirectly, I suppose, uh, most common, commonly we find out information about what people think about their consultations afterwards through through interviews or less commonly surveys or focus groups or whatever. And where do you think the future of this research is going to go? Well, that's a really good question. Well, we've, we've still got loads to do. We're in, we've got a condition which within osteoporosis if we're talking about osteoporosis we've got a condition which is very poorly managed poorly identified uh, is not patient-centered at all in its approach um, and uh, has very poor treatment uptake so we've got and actually the communication both between between researchers and clinicians between clinicians and between clinicians and patients is at the root of lots of these problems so really could go in many directions and there's still an awful lot of work to do. Sounds like what we need is some sort of infotaining podcast about bone health and osteoporosis. If only, if only we had that, that would be amazing. With interesting and exciting guests interview. Yeah, completely. <laughs> That's what we need. Zoe, that has been an absolutely enthralling conversation. I think it's going to be really interesting for the people who are patients listening to this. I think it's going to be nice to get an insight into the thinking that goes in from the clinical side, both within a consultation, but also all the research that's going in behind those scenes to make sure those consultations improve. The doctor-patient interaction is the most fundamental thing in healthcare. And all those problems that you just listed, poor identification of the disease, poor uptake of treatment, etc., we could go a long way to solving those problems if you can improve those consultations and also, you know, more widely the public information that is disseminated around the condition. Thank you, Richard. That's a great summary of why I exist. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's such important. It's such an important area of research. 
And we can put so much money into finding a new drug. And yet if the doctor uses one wrong word in that first consultation and the patient decides not to take the drug, then it then all the research on the on the benefit of the drug really doesn't matter. And I think I, I agree with Richie. It's why this type of research in this area of medicine is the foundation on which everything else is built. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Thank you. So, David, I really enjoyed the interview we did with Zoe. I thought she was very articulate and very clear. And it was a really interesting insight for me into the doctor-patient relationship and and the kind of communication that goes on. What for you do you think were the key takeaway points? I have to say the first takeaway point I had was not to ask three questions at once, particularly not to Zoe, who (laughs) was very keen to draw me up on that. And that's that's just to improve my interviewing, interviewing technique. I mean, I think... One of the most important things she said was just to just to set the scene for the patient and find out a little about what the patient's expectations are and what their beliefs are. Because if a patient thinks they've broken their hip because they tripped over the dog, then if you immediately launch into discussion of fracture risk and assessments and bone density and, and, and drugs, you may have lost the patient because they're not on the same page. And just a little time at the start, finding out what they think. And then if, if you as the clinician feel that they're maybe not up to speed with the risk, as I appreciate it, then a little discussion about, well, you know, your sister has broken her hip and you've taken steroids. And, and you know, do you not think maybe your bones may be brittle? You may be at risk. And just a, a little, just the five or 10 minutes spent doing that can make such a difference in the long term. As we said earlier, you can have a fantastic expensive drug, but if you get the word wrong at the start, if the patient's not on board right at the start, then if the drug's not taken, then they get no benefit from it. So I think that's setting the background and finding out what the patient's understanding of the problem is before you start is really useful. There were other just small things, for example, like using, I think the term is vulgar fraction rather than than percentage. And if I'm wrong on that, please, please do correct me. Um, But rather than saying 25%, saying one in four, because people find that much easier to understand. That's something I might change next week in the clinic when I'm talking to people. It's interesting that you would make changes in how you talk to patients based on the discussions that we've had today. Are there any other changes do you think that you'd make? I I enjoyed our discussion briefly about, uh, I think the technical term is positive and negative framing because that's a very powerful tool as as I think we mentioned earlier. And so if you say to a patient, you have a a 10% risk of suffering a hip fracture in the next 10 years and a hip fracture is a terrible thing to happen. I can say it like that if I'm really trying to persuade the patient to take a drug, but you can frame that negatively and say, there's a 90% chance that you won't have a hip fracture. And I can use that if I'm really trying to persuade the patient, let's say not to take the drug. And those are very powerful tools. And Zoe discussed how, you know, we need to use those carefully and how, while 
in some circumstances, we should both positively and negatively frame things. For example, if we're trying to put the risk of very rare side effects from bisphosphonates into perspective, it's important to negatively frame things. But there are some instances in which if you if you give the that flip side, that 50 or 60 or 70% chance on something not happening, then you can actually dilute your message. So I think she used the term tightrope. We're always walking a tightrope, trying to respect the patient's view, trying to help them make the decision. I think she used the term in keeping with their values, but also at the same time realizing that you are the expert and you have the knowledge and that you're trying to use that to enable them to make what you think is the right decision or the best decision. And that positive and negative framing of things is, is a very powerful tool. And again, that's something I, I think I probably need to think about how I use that uh, at, at the clinic. And the other people in the clinic then are the patients, the people living with osteoporosis. What do you think would be the key takeaways for the patients from today's interview? I suppose the correct answer to that is that we'd love to hear from the patients because I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to speak on, the, on their behalf. Um, and certainly we have had a lot of feedback from patients and we're keen to have more. I suppose the general answer to that is what we're trying to do in this podcast series. And that is, is educate and inform and entertain, but ultimately to, I suppose, empower patients that they feel educated about osteoporosis and that specifically they feel empowered to get the most out of the interaction with the clinician. We know that time with a clinician, particularly with a, an expert in the hospital, for example, is precious and often quite short. And we want to really empower people that they feel they can get the most out of that by being knowledgeable, asking the right questions and coming away feeling confident about the decision that they've made. And if what we've talked about today uh, contributes to that, well, then uh, I, I think the episode will have been worthwhile. That's really fantastic. I love that really positive and empowering message. And it's going to be really, really, really good if we can help anybody to do that. So if you're listening to the podcast and you have learned anything interesting or you do find the information useful or you do take it into a consultation, then please let us know for better or worse how it went. I suppose now we should uh, draw the episode to a close. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye now.